Today's story takes place in the suburbs of Montreal, Quebec. Montreal lies between Quebec City and Ottawa, Ontario. On the morning of September 20th, 2001, two landscapers were driving by a home in Kirkland. Kirkland is on the west side of the island of Montreal. When they noticed flames shooting from a home, they were quick to act and jumped out of their truck and ran to the front door, trying to get inside. Unable to kick the door in, they headed to the back of the house and kicked the patio door open. With the flames building and the heat rising, they grabbed the garden hose, went inside the house, and started screaming for possible residents, hoping to help anyone who might still be inside. Meanwhile, a neighbor, Karen Dory, was on the phone with 911, already reporting the fire. The fire department quickly arrived on the scene and entered the home to ensure no one was inside. However, they soon discovered that this wasn't a normal fire, and the circumstances found inside the home weren't normal either. Something horrible had happened under that charred roof, and it didn't have to do with the flames. I'm Stephanie Warham, and this is Wicked Ever After. Since this also goes on YouTube, there's a lot of words I cannot say, such as sexual assault, sexual abuse, rape. So in those moments, you might hear me on the podcast say S-A. So I just wanted to give a heads up that as you're listening, um, you might hear something a little bit different. And that's only because I want to be able to post this on YouTube. Please consider clicking the thumbs up button on this episode. Also, please consider subscribing to my YouTube channel or my podcast. It really helps the algorithm here on YouTube when you like, subscribe, and share my episodes. Also, I do have Invisalign, so if I mispronounce a word, I apologize in advance. This particular home belonged to a 51-year-old man named John Bauer and his 50-year-old wife named Helen Carol Bauer. John grew up in Griffintown, which is home to a large number of Irish working class in Montreal. He was the third of four children, and his European immigrant parents were often described as strict and frugal. His father worked as a butcher at Canada Packers, and his mother was a stay-at-home mom who later passed away in 1991. By 1965, John's parents had saved enough money to move their family to NDG, which is a wealthier, more prosperous area. NDG stands for Notre Dame de Grasse. Once there, John attended St. Thomas High School, which was an all-boys school. As a teenager, he was remembered as serious and somewhat insecure. Many thought he was often putting on a facade in order to fit in, instead of just being his true self. Despite his insecurities, John was a natural athlete and played hockey, quickly becoming a respected player in the Quebec Junior Hockey League. One of his lifelong friends described him as a rough and confident hockey player. Quote, he never saw a mean streak in him where he would fight or hurt someone physically. End quote. However, not everyone seemed to agree with that statement, implying that sport seemed to give him an outlet to be demanding, controlling, and loud. In the late 1970s, the NHL offered John a contract to referee, but he declined the offer because he wanted to make more money. The referee jobs at that time were lower paying and very short contracts. Often they were just game-to-game contracts. So it did make sense, I guess, that John wanted something more stable and consistent. Besides the desire for consistent work, 
John was also known to be a big spender, and he would often flaunt his money. He was the first of his friends to get a car, and they said, quote, he was a big shot then, and he loved it, end quote. Whenever out with friends and family, John would insist on paying for drinks and dinner. This was often interpreted as John flaunting his money instead of him being generous. Many commented how John liked to be liked. If he wanted you to like him, he bought you stuff. It seemed like those past insecurities continued to haunt John, making him feel the need to buy his way to acceptance. Friends often wondered where he got his money. To their knowledge, he had a part-time job at an NGG sporting goods store, but it doesn't seem to make sense that he would be able to pay and support this type of lifestyle, but who knows. The owner of the sporting goods store, who so happened to be John's boss, owned a racetrack. This is around the time when John began hanging around the track. As he had gotten older, he displayed more charismatic personality, one that was often used to manipulate people to get whatever he wanted. His brother Steve described John as being able to talk to anyone and talk anyone into anything. So it's no surprise that John knew all the gamblers the owners and trainers at the racehorse track. It seemed that John always knew when to bet on a particular horse, leading many to speculate something fishy was going on with all his connections. With John always randomly betting on the right horse, he ended up making a fortune. John was described by others as being generous with his money, often seen handing out $20 bills to panhandlers and making sure everyone was taken care of. Perhaps this was because as a boy in Griffintown, John had grown up next to a soup kitchen and had seen firsthand the effects of starvation and poverty. This seemed to form the belief that money equals power, success, and self-esteem, and without it, you're a nobody. John met his wife Helen while attending Teachers College in 1969. A friend and bridesmaid at their wedding said that instead of John chasing Helen, it was the opposite. Helen spent her time running after John. This friend described John at the time as, quote, he was a bit of a hero. He had money, he was an athlete, and he was very sure of himself, end quote. However, Helen's friend quickly became resentful of Helen's relationship with John, saying that her earthy and fun-loving friend completely changed after she started dating John. She stopped going out with friends and her whole world seemed to focus on John. Friends said that Helen was subservient, but they also said that she seemed happy in a relationship with John. John quickly fell for Helen and was constantly love-bombing her with gifts and attention, making sure he did whatever was necessary to keep her happy in the relationship. Marriage seemed on the horizon. However, according to Helen's sister, John refused to marry Helen until he could afford a home. Finally, by 1976, John had saved up enough money for a house, and he and Helen were married on July 10th of that same year. They went on to have three children, all boys. Jonathan came first, followed three years later by Wesley, and six years later, Justin came into the world, completing what neighbors called a very happy and normal family. As the oldest, Jonathan was gentle and outgoing and seemed to inherit his father's natural athletic ability. As a young adult, he worked at a bar called Cheers on the West Island and was also a Little League coach. He had dreams of moving out West and was saving money to do so. 
Wesley was described as sensitive and caring, earning the nickname Pooh Bear because he was so gentle and cared deeply about other people. At 19, he was studying arts at Dawson College, worked at a grocery store called Loblaws, and in his off time was a talented musician. It was reported that John was embarrassed about Wesley's choice of direction in school because he had given up sports for music, but it didn't seem to slow Wesley down much as he continued to play the bass and guitar. The youngest, Justin, was also very athletic and a leader on and off the field. He had a lot of heart and that was evident in everything he did. Friends and family described him as a natural leader who was always so sweet and loving. John spoiled his kids with the largest gadgets, always gifting the new computers and toys. They had multiple pinball machines, a pool table, jukeboxes, playstations. However, John was no pushover and was described as a demanding father, pushing his kids to excel and meet his perfect standards. If his kids weren't number one, John would verbalize to them that they were letting the Bauer name down. John often criticized his kids and pushed them extremely hard. Despite the rigorous demands at home, the kids were polite, well brought up, and under control, according to a family friend. They were super kids, but still often failed to meet up to their father's big expectations. Helen often had to run interference and stand up to her husband because the kids were often afraid of their dad and his outrageous expectations. During their marriage, John had been teaching for a number of years, but by 1980, he was growing tired of this decade-long battle with school politics, so he decided to leave that profession. After leaving, and perhaps he was inspired by his father-in-law who worked at Molson, John applied at the same company, but he was turned down due to lack of experience. But a short while later, he landed a job at Carling O'Keefe. When he first started out, he was a representative for them, negotiating contracts with bars, restaurants, retail stores. He was there for about two years before he was hired by Molson, but he actually didn't stay at Molson for very long, and he ended up working at Labatt in 1990. John seemed to find his calling in the beer world, excelling at his job in marketing. He loved showing up at sports banquets and charity dances, ready to promote Labatt. In my opinion, it seemed John really wanted to be liked, probably lacking confidence and wanted to be the center of attention, enjoying the validation he got from his job. At home, John was old-fashioned, dad, always the one in control. He handled the money and made sure his stay-at-home wife, whom he referred to as his little woman, lived in style. I hate (laughs) that nickname so much for so many reasons. According to Helen's friends, John wanted to be the number one provider and wanted Helen to show her friends and family all of the things he bought her. However, Helen, a woman who spent her time volunteering at a daycare center at St. Mary's Anglican Church, wasn't a show-off, and doing this made her very uncomfortable. In 1996, the marriage started to show some strain, and things started to spiral for John and his family. It seemed to start when John injured his leg, which then got infected and was not healing properly. This caused him a lot of pain, and as a result, he struggled with walking. Because he was less active, he quickly gained a lot of weight, pushing the scale to 300 pounds. Doctors told him that if he wanted his leg to heal, he needed to slim down. 
So John decided to undergo stomach stapling surgery to help him lose his weight. And he did it, and he did it quickly, and he dropped 100 pounds and went back for a second surgery. Due to all of the medical issues, John was unable to work for an entire year, and his insurance company cut off his disability payments. Rumor had it that the money was drying up and Helen had to borrow money from her father. Three years after his leg injury in 1999, John left Labatt, but it's not super clear why he left the company, especially if they were struggling financially. So according to a colleague, John left on his own terms and wasn't fired or let go. This friend said that he didn't like the company politics, doesn't that sound familiar, and wanted a retirement package. However, later police records stated that he was fired after showing signs of depression, alcohol dependence, and belligerence. He spent the next six months selling automatic weighing and packaging equipment across North America. He also took a second job as a night manager at a bar in NDG. It's around this time that he met a man named Lucio Beccarini who was a hockey dad and worked at Spar Financial Group, which he co-owned with Alain Chapeau. Soon after, Lucio invited John to work with them. But it's also been reported that Lucio actually hired John because he felt sorry for him and wanted to do him a favor. And Alain was not thrilled about hiring him. Either way, John began working as a salesperson and worked on commission basis. He often bragged about how high his commission was to his brother, but his financial situation continued to get worse. It seemed that despite losing a significant amount of money, John was still living the same lifestyle and struggled to keep up, forcing him to continue borrowing money. It's estimated that at the time of his death, he was 200K plus in debt. He had two mortgages, several maxed out credit cards, unpaid phone bills, and private loans. It appeared he owed money to everyone, including his father-in-law, who he continued to hit up for money. Things seemed to be getting worse and worse, and at one point, John told a friend that he should just die so Helen could collect the life insurance. Quote, I should drive a car into a wall, but with my luck, I would survive, end quote. It was also speculated that he might have had some gambling debt as well and that he may have owed money to the underworld. It's also believed that his son Jonathan also lost money betting and his dad was paying off his debts, seemingly in denial with how little money he actually had. In June 2001, John applied for a second mortgage from Spar, the company he was working for, but They refused his request, not trusting he could pay the debt back. I don't blame them. He owes a lot of money to a lot of people. So during the summer, John started to avoid work and he started complaining his back was hurting and he just didn't go to work anymore. All the extra hours at home seemed to have John seriously consider the idea of dying so Helen could receive the life insurance money. He was working on a plan to claim 400 k insurance policy, going so far as hiring a hitman that would kill him and Lucio as they left the bar. However, the hitman turned down the offer and instead went to the police. When the police questioned John about the incident, He said it was just a misunderstanding and asked, quote, why would I want to kill myself, end quote. While John may have charmed his way out of further trouble with the police, he seemed to be desperately trying to figure out a new plan to get out of debt and fix his financial situation. 
a plan that was about to turn deadly. Now let's go back to the morning of September 20th, 2001. Firefighters entered the Bauer home, hoping to help the residents escape the flames. As neighbors watched from their windows at the unfolding scene, they soon saw the police arrive around 9.30 a.m. So what did the firefighters discover inside? Horrifyingly, they discovered six bodies scattered throughout the two-story home. Three bodies on the main floor, one body on the second floor, and two in the basement. One would assume they died from the house fire, right? But each body had a bullet wound to the back of the head. A .22 caliber pistol laid beside two of the bodies on the kitchen floor. It became evident this wasn't a normal house fire after all. Instead, it was a cover-up for murder. 50-year-old Helen, 22-year-old Jonathan, 19-year-old Wesley, and 13, almost 14-year-old Justin were all found dead in the home, all with bullet wounds to the back of their head. They also found the body of his business associate, 44-year-old Lucio. But it's when they found John's body that the scene began to unfold. John had killed everyone inside the home, his wife, all three of his children, and his business associate before turning the gun on himself. Word spread fast that the family had been killed, and the neighbor, Karen, who had initially called 911, became very concerned about Helen's 75-year-old father, Elmer, who spent most of his weekends at the family home. The police followed up on Karen's worries and went to his home at NDG. This is where they found him dead from a gunshot wound. They had just found their seventh body and they officially had a massacre on their hands. The investigation into the murders and motive began immediately. Three unaliving letters were soon discovered. One had been sent to John's brother in Ontario, one to Helen's brother in Montreal, and the third to Helen's cousin, also in Ontario. The letters were never released to the public, but according to Detective Bouchard, the letter spoke of quote, shooting his family and setting fire to the house so they could all live in heaven together, end quote. Each letter was five and a half pages long, and John assured the readers that none of the family members suffered. He explained that he could no longer cope with the financial pressure and that Helen was worried about their future. He wrote that his children had suffered enough and that he killed his father-in-law because Elmer would not have survived without his family. He expressed that he wanted to take everyone out of their pain so they could all be happy together in paradise. Okay, just unalive yourself and leave everyone else alone. He mentioned heaven multiple times, but according to his friend, John didn't believe in heaven, saying, quote, that's John putting on a show. I don't think any of it rings true, end quote. After putting the pieces together, police believe that John shot Helen first in the early hours of September 18th, while she was asleep. He then went and shot Justin while he was sleeping. After shooting his wife and son, he called Helen's work to report that she wouldn't be going in that day due to illness. He made the same phone call to Justin's school. So fucking gross. As for Wesley, they believe that he was shot later that evening when he came home from his classes. They're not really sure when Jonathan was killed. It could have been when he came home from work at 3 a.m. on January 19th or some other time. 
They're also unsure if John shot them while they were sleeping or if they were shot upon entering the home. It's really unclear. That same day, January 19th, he drove to his father-in-law Elmer's house and shot him. Following the same pattern, he called an unknown company and reported Elmer was sick and wouldn't be coming into work. Later that day on Wednesday, John invited Lucio and Alain to his house because he needed to take care of some business. Both declined the invitation. He tried again the next morning, inviting both of them over for breakfast. Alain declined yet again, but this time Lucio agreed to go over. Upon his arrival, John shot him and then poured gasoline around the house before lighting a fire and turning the gun on himself. Lucio was never mentioned in the letters, so the police theory is that his killing was last minute and that John had hoped to get revenge on both Lucio and Alain for denying him the second mortgage he had requested. In order for everyone to remain ignorant of what took place in the house, John moved the bodies throughout the home so that the next person entering the home wouldn't know what was going on, giving him time to shoot them before they knew what was happening. As you can imagine, this caused a very confusing scene for investigators. There was so much water and fire damage, it was hard to piece everything together. Police relied heavily on pathology reports, interviews, and those unaliving letters. They ordered DNA tests on the envelope and powder burn tests on the gun, which proved John fired the weapon. In total, John killed seven people plus himself over the span of three days. The community and family were shocked to hear the gruesome details of the family massacre. Everyone said the family was so normal and some of the nicest people in the world. As a matter of fact, John had just sent his son Jonathan on a golf holiday last spring. In the summer, he gave Wesley a puppy and he was seen cheering for Justin in all of his baseball games. No one would have ever guessed that the family was struggling so much and that John had concocted a deadly plan to relieve them all. His brother later said, quote, How could he seem so happy? He was a good actor, end quote. A question many would wonder. Rosemary, John's sister, said, quote, We loved him. He was our brother. The guy he turned out to be in the end was a very sick guy. It's not the guy we knew, end quote. Remaining family and friends, as well as the community, tried their best to honor the victims, especially John's three sons. Cheers, the bar that Jonathan worked at, became a memorial where people brought flowers and pictures, while the bar itself lit a candle in his memory. Friends came in and ordered shots in remembrance of their dear friend. Wesley's friends talked about how much they would miss him, especially his girlfriend, Melina, who had just had dinner with the family the Saturday before. She said, everything and everyone seemed great and there were no alarm bells. His friends remember him as Mr. Congeniality, Mr. Comedian, and remember him fondly studying at Tim Hortons with an ice cap in hand, a picture to perfectly describe the much-loved Wesley. Psychologists are still trying to understand and fully grasp the mind of family annihilators, especially as these murderers seem to be happening more and more frequently. But there does seem to be some running themes in these cases. Often, the family Annihilator's identity is based on his or her success as a financial provider, and when that security is threatened, it can lead to despair. Quote, John was a man's man who lacked the ability to say, I'm in trouble. It wasn't just one act of despair, but the outcome of a long period of despair. 
says Hardy, a former classmate of John's and psychotherapist. He goes on to explain that right now we will never fully understand those who choose this type of ending, saying, quote, the potential for evil in the darkness, that is the mystery of the human mind, end quote. In the comments, let me know your thoughts and opinions on the case. Please hit the subscribe button on YouTube or whatever podcast platform you're listening on. You can stay connected with me on Instagram and TikTok at This Is Stephanie Mora. You can also share your case suggestions with me by email at steph at stephaniemoram.co or you can simply send me a DM on Instagram. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Until next time, stay safe out there.